Just a quick word of warning before we get going that the following podcast will almost certainly contain spoilers and may also contain strong language and conversations of an adult nature. Welcome to episode 114 of Strong Language and Violent Scenes, the podcast giving a second chance to films that might not deserve them. I'm Mitch Bain, I'm a lapsed horror writer and an occasional doer of musical things. And I'm Andy Stewart. And joining us tonight, making an unprecedented third appearance on the show, you know him as the host and the man behind the podcast Under the Stairs, also from the Rawhead Rex and the whole episodes of this show, it's only Duncan McLeish back in the building. Hello. Hey. Hello. I, I don't know what, I, I don't know what's going on here. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> I mean, this is once again congratulations, uh, amazing Thank achievement, um, getting as far as you are and still killing it, and everything that's happened since uh, with your Patreon, etc. It's brilliant. Thank you for inviting me back. I always feel humbled when I get a chance to chat to two fellow Scots because usually all my podcasts are American, so <laughs> makes me happy. Duncan, how has the last year been? Because it's been over a year since we last had you on. Obviously, it's been a bit weird lately. How has lockdown and all the surrounding nonsense treated you? It's weird. Everyone else has been so productive with just life. <laughs> um, and I have went the other way. I mean, this is like the perfect climate for a podcaster. Like, mm. you're at home all the time. Uh, but yeah, I've went the other way. I I'd surprisingly have done very, very little uh, in six months and it's got so bad that even when the opportunity arose to come here I've picked the laziest title I could have picked to come <laughs> back on um, but I stand by it yeah you have um, you've literally picked the film that your podcast is named after unless that's a coincidence which I'm assuming that it isn't no uh, this is one of these ones this is one of these ones where I have lost count how many times I have seen this movie and or talked about this movie but this is the first time in the format of a show where it actually is kind of applicable. <laughs> you know what I mean? This that kind of fits the brief. So I'm I'm chuffed because all the other times it's people like, you know, you could come on and speak on this show and guess what we should do? The people under the stairs. I think this is the first time I've volunteered as a title. So I feel, wow. feel privileged. Excellent. Good. Good. Ga- guys, so, can I just I- quickly say, I just ate some really, really spicy chili ramen. <laughs> um, my mouth is ablaze. My lips are swollen like Steven Tyler's. Amazing. Like okay. I, I'm lashing with sweat and I've got a weird burning feeling in my chest that is either indigestion or a heart attack. So please bear with me because um, I'm, in, I, I'm in the middle of something. Well, I can you do realise that if it is a heart attack, if it is a heart attack, my technical knowledge is absolute zero and this episode will not see the light of day. <laughs> So, well, wait, Duncan, no. so Duncan, you've mentioned the fact that your history with this film is long and storied. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Because you have gone for Wes Craven's 1991 film, The People Under the Stairs. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I mean, I remember seeing this when it came out on VHS and this was a repeat offender. And I was, I was a youngin when this came out. So, well, not that young, but youngin. And I used to get free reign. My, my parents separated when I was young, so when I was staying with one of the parental units, I used to get free reign to pretty much pick any movie that I wanted at the, the video store. Remember when they were a thing? Mm. Um, and uh, people under the stairs, the cover, the cover artwork, all, my eyes were drawn to it instantly. 
and um, I, I I lost count how many times I saw this as a kid, and I didn't see it for years until Arrow Video put it out in what like twenty thirteen I think it was twenty twelve they put it out on Blu-ray. I was like, I'm having that, and that way where you get that fear and trepidation that when you sit down and watch a movie from your youth, it's just going to suck. Mm-hmm. And weirdly, I grew to love it even more, uh, so much mm-hmm. so that the same year I started the horror podcast and named the podcast after it. Um, yeah, it's a it's a strange one, uh, to say the least, and it's a weird one, even in the, the Craven catalogue. Uh, this is the, 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 the kind of wandering years for Craven in between... Uh, it's kind of about of doing like Nightmare on Elm Street and then basically trying to copy Nightmare on Elm Street, make his version of a voodoo movie and uh, Vampire in Brooklyn, which was a movie <laughs> made right after this, uh, just before he hit in with Scream. So, you know, he's, I, I mean, that's one of the reasons I like Wes Craven as a director. He's completely inconsistent, but the man never just made the same movie twice, really. He always tried to put some weird spin on it. And The People Under the Stairs is as bizarre a Wes Craven movie as has ever existed and nothing to do with the fact that it comes right on the heels of Home Alone which this movie rips off in places <laughs> blatantly definitely so, it's a good one I, I'm, look, I'm genuinely looking forward to this um, because like there are going to be sentences coming out all of our mouths that I don't think your listeners if they've never seen this movie will expect and or will believe Definitely, I would say that that is true. Uh, almost inevitably, I'm at the complete other end of the spectrum. My first viewing of The People Under the Stairs concluded something like 40 minutes ago. That's insane, man. That is absolutely... Uh, to be a fly on the wall in your household would have been amazing. As I, Yeah, as I watched this for the first time, age 33. Yeah, I should post my, I should post my text conversations with you, Mitch. Yeah, you really should, actually. Yeah, uh-huh, definitely. But, um, Andy, what about yourself? What's your background with The People Under the Stairs? Because you were pretty keen to do this as well when I told you that this is the first thing that Duncan had floated for I actually thought you were going to say you're pretty old too (laughs) Um, but yeah you're kind of right I'm older than Duncan um, but our stories are largely similar this was certainly a video shop thing for me I had it in an ex-rental big box uh, for a while as well on VHS Uh, yeah this was a film that I first watched on VHS at a weird party with guys that I went to school with like we must have been in like maybe second or third year at the time I remember there was another film that we watched that night was The Silence of the Lambs, two films that could not be more different in quality and tone I half agree with you, I don't know, I think the quality thing is a little harsh well, I I don't know if People Under the Stairs was ever at risk of winning five Oscars (laughs) that's all I'll say to that but I would say that the people under the stairs was the more successful watching experience on the night than an extremely heavy psychological thriller. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see it being the crowd pleaser of the pair for sure. <laughs> it certainly was, yeah. So, um, many subsequent rewatches for you? Yeah, yeah, and much like Duncan again. I, uh, in fact, it was the Arrow Video Blu-ray that I watched tonight. Oh, okay. Almost inevitably, I watched whatever's available for rental on Amazon Prime. I always feel so uncultured in these conversations. <laughs> well, you made the You've decision. Got more money in your wallet, though. Mm, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, you know what? You'd think that, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> Sitting there with your ten-pound bottle of wine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Duncan, you have been on the show enough to know what comes next. I hope. Yep. Andy, do we have thirty seconds on the clock? Of course we do. Okay, this has the potential to be one of the more interesting ones of these that we've had in a while. Duncan, if I count you in, are you ready to give us your best 30-second synopsis of the people under the stairs? 
Yep. Go for it. All right. Three, two, one, go. What happens when the 1% control an entire neighbourhood's wealth and the 99% rise up against incest, gimps with shotguns, people that are mutilated and in between the walls, and of course, Ving Rhames and possibly the most absurd performance ever, <laughs> The People Under the Stairs. Yeah. I think that I think you're covering all the main bases there. Certainly a lot of the kind of like uh, the more absurd far ends of it. <laughs> yes. I would like um, to yeah. believe that they were also rising up against people who put their dogs in novelty collars. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's so there's so many elements in this movie that there's so many like little details that just don't make this apparently uh, without starting to go and jump right now. But this apparently was a fever dream for Craven. Uh, I had this dream when he was making um, Serpent in the Rainbow. And it came to him as this fever dream outline idea that basically took him like five years to make. Wow. And like the fever dream is right. Um, but it was just an outline, which means that after the fever dream, a lot of the details were put in kind of post the dream. And that's the bit that confused it. Like there's so much weirdness. And honestly, it, it was only, I watched it last night and there was like specific things, like I've reviewed it hundreds of times, but there's specific things that you start to track your eyes when you put the review goggles on. Mm. That I was just like, why that? <laughs> why that, Wes Craven? Please explain why that. And it's just that there's a plethora of them all the way right through the entire movie. Um, yeah. See, so, so yeah, like, I mean, I, I, obviously I've only seen this the one time, but I can totally see that happening with subsequent viewings because it's one of those things, it's an absolute kind of sensory assault for the most mm-hmm. part, especially since it's kind of so largely set in the one house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So I think that like I was so busy trying to process while also taking notes um, about what was going on that I think that I kind of can't wait to watch it again, just not to spoiler too much what I thought of it, but um, I kind of can't wait to watch it again just to see what sort of weird curiosities and eccentricities my eye just kind of like ran over the first time round. Yeah, it's just all the details. It's all the small details to do with. I mean, the the fact. I mean, uh, this guy, Wes Craven. Outweirds David Lynch by casting two weird characters from Twin Peaks in as an incestuous brother and sister couple. And I mean, it's genius casting. I mean, the movie mm. itself has genius casting, but that in itself is. I mean, Wendy, Wendy Robbie here is like she's Nadine in Twin Peaks. I'm a huge Twin Peaks fan. Yeah, um, you know, you know, and she has an eye patch and obs- is obsessed with you know silent drapes. Yeah, silent runners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this movie. She's like this weird, God-fearing, incestuous, cannibalistic, oppressive, insane. I mean, the, the words, the adjectives don't do justice to how no. crazy she is. And she has some of my favourite scenes in horror in this one. Specifically all the stuff that pays homage to the, the older stuff uh, later on in the movie when she's just running around screaming with a knife. I, I mean, it's just incredible. And at its core, I mean, at its core, when you strip it all back, weirdly there is a kind of kind of societal message here about mm-hmm. wealth inequality specifically in the ghetto and like that's the bit I kind of love is Craven's put that in there as, as if the movie wasn't a sensory assault enough there is a weird message in here which gets more pertinent the further we go on oh there's an absolute classism thing in yeah there. yeah it's, 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 and it's to, to be honest right it's not definitely done but it's done to a <laughs> point where you know what I mean we, we are in a position where we are in 2020 where like essentially in the next month or so there's going to be mass homelessness in America specifically because of landlords and then I look at this movie and I'm like 
Was Wes Craven a prophet? Yeah. Um, maybe? Who knows? <laughs> I just want to jump on the, the bandwagon here and send in love to Wendy Roby and uh, Everett McGill's performances here. I That's think so they're absolutely brilliant. And they were cast because Wes Craven liked them as a couple in Twin Peaks. And mm-hmm. that's just equally lovely. But yeah, you can see elements in Nadine and Mommy's performance in this, but like Everett McGill's performance could not be more different to Twin Peaks and he's he's <laughs> a revelation. He's an absolute revelation in this. It's one of those performances that's completely without ego. It's just I don't care what people think. Yeah. I completely agree. I wrote that down as well. I think that, like, uh, you're right, it's just completely unencumbered by any kind of inhibition. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I think that that's amazing. We can, we, can, we can get into it as we go and as we meet these characters and understand a little bit more about them. But uh, let's dive into this. And we open with um, a kind of tarot card reading. See, that's the thing. You're talking about, like, kind of weird choices and things. Like, this film opens on tarot. Right, which mm-hmm. is this obviously it's a kind of esoteric thing that mm-hmm. really shouldn't exist in a film that's entirely rooted in reality. I suppose not, but here we are. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, it is pointing to the fact that uh, someone has uh, a hell of a year ahead of them. We find out that that person is a fool, uh, real name Poindexter, which is a hell of a combination. Yeah, yeah. Brandon Adams, he was in uh, The Mighty Ducks and most famously, Moonwalker. Mm-hmm. He also fantastic in this, by the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, once again, like, like Craven went for, this is like, like I say before, this is kind of post the, the kind of Home Alone boom. And Craven like, had a home run here because I, I know how many early 90s horror movies star absolutely horrendous child actors. Yeah. So, yep. um, so he had a complete home run. This kid's brilliant all the way through it is absolutely brilliant he's fun engaging his comic timing is is great and his reactions are priceless yeah. also i think it's important to mention he's black yes prominent as well once again not a, you didn't see that a lot even by even by 91 you did the director's just not doing that sort of it wasn't to an extent all that marketable and mm. like i say we go from this movie vampire in brooklyn is is craven's essential follow-up to this one where he goes down that road again so it's, it's eddie murphy it's a mostly black cast doing a kind of vo- once it voodoo i don't know he obviously did he, he obviously did separate in the rainbow and was just like voodoo is the way forward tarot cards and voodoo that's that is my scene now um, and I, yeah but you, what you've got um uh, brandon adams is like a, a high quality here he, he actually outshines a couple of I think he's better than A.G. Langer in this movie, mm. if I'm honest. Although she's really good. But he's brilliant. He's a, a, a class act, for sure. Yeah, I, I think so. I think so. I think that like um, it's... A, it's a character that needs a really fearless performance, and he's all in for it, which is which is great. But yeah, we do, like, we do see that um, the cards read Judgment, Death, and Mr. Devil, which doesn't read great. <laughs> it's the name of my autobiography from at the end of the year. <laughs> Or also a description of 2020. Yeah. Uh-huh. And we do kind of jump straight into Fool's family life, which is uh, pretty fractious. His sister Ruby, and we've got his mother there as well, but they hint very, very quickly that um, eviction is on the cards. Mm-hmm. Sure, literally. <laughs> I see what you did there. Uh, also, it's kind of alluded to, and we'll learn a little bit more about it later, but his mom obviously very ill. 
yeah, yeah. Also, we this is the first point that we meet Ruby's friend Leroy. <laughs> friend or pimp, right? Mm. I mean, mm. can you have a friend that's a pimp? I don't know. I've got uh, you I, can. I, I'm, I'm sure you can. I don't know about that. <laughs> I'd always be thinking, you're a pimp. Um, <laughs> They're social guys. <laughs> social guys. <laughs> they, they know how to party. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Yeah. Bing Reams, like, like, I love Bing Reams. Yes. I love Bing Reams. This is one of the most genius, once again, like, once, I don't want to just keep blowing smoke up Wes Craven's ass, but this is, once again, an incredible bit of casting. Like, Bing Reams is brilliant in this movie. I mean, absolutely. The lines. Yeah. Like, you know, the, the the many, many, many amazing lines in this movie that come out of Reams's mouth just make me smile. But he is... I, I find it difficult to hate him as an actor, but he's the not nice guy in this movie. Well, one of many not nice guys in this movie and representing an aspect in this movie, which I think is... This is where I think a lot of critics started leaning down on Craven for using kind of specific uh, stereotypes, which I'm actually all right with in the movie overall with the message but the the, the ring the ving reams character of leroy is the you know he's a thief potential pimp and he's also a man of color so as mm. you know i don't know it depends how you take it <laughs> maybe maybe we should look too far at that but he's amazing he's also got a quite a dapper line in animal print clothing <laughs> Yeah, that, that really consider, considering that he's only in a handful of scenes, it really does run the gauntlet with that, doesn't it? <laughs> if it's got of, stripes or spots, he's got a shot. Yeah, it's, it's, he's a man of very few few demands on set. You know, he doesn't want like he doesn't want like heavy on water or anything. Like that. Just leopard print. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, far as the eye could see. But you're right, uh, Doug. You made a good point there. It's like Vig, Vig Ram's very likable screen presence playing an absolutely reprehensible character here to the point that I was as impressionable as fool was when he's like i've got a way for you to make money it's like oh this will be wholesome no way that this can go wrong um oh sorry mitch are you talking about the point where he ropes a boy a 13 year old boy into becoming a burglar that'll be a what burglar that is or an adventurer <laughs> you decide <laughs> well i mean it's it's the, the, there are more than a few kind of similarities to the goonies here right mm-hmm. in this film and i would say that the goonies are as thievy as fool, <laughs> you're on the money. You really, they really are. They really are. And we love the Goonies. Yeah, like, Goonies never say die. Yeah, <laughs> they always turn a blind eye to their lives of crime. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Leroy is um, is planning to enlist uh, enlist fool's help as um, a pint sized burglar. It also, mm-hmm. by the way, why does fool just go along with us? Right, I know they need the money, but like. They don't have an existing relationship because Leroy says to Fool, who are you? Like, so how can he know the sister in any way to know that she doesn't have a 13-year-old brother called Fool? That's a good question. I mean, I mean, I mean, like, I, I don't really have, a, I don't really have an answer for that. Like, uh, apart from the fact that desperate times, desperate measures, very impressionable thirteen-year-old. But yeah, you're right. It's specifically established that they don't have a prior relationship. Yeah. yeah. All I'm going to say is I'm, I might use this line that a few times, but. Fever dream. Right, sure. Fever dream. Sure, sure, yeah. sure. I should get a jail-free card right there, Duncan. <laughs> the fever dream card is being played yeah. again. The, the this, is, this is going to be like a couple of weeks ago when James Plum did Dead Heat and he just kept shouting it was the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is a good excuse, though. 
Oh, that, that, I mean, the 80s were a weird time. It was just what you did back then. Do um, you think slightly weird? Go on. The decision right after this to take us into the house to meet Mommy and Daddy at this point, mm-hmm. I think it's it's quite weird to get involved in their lives before our main characters do. Yep, I think you're right. I think it, it weirdly diffuses in some respects and not in others because the, the, the movie just gets weirder but weirdly diffuses some of the what would be the initial shock factor that you would get if you just stumbled into a house and then realised like Phil, Phil's reactions we've already seen a lot of what goes on in that house before you know he even sets foot in it so on some extent from an audience perspective as a viewer we are already acclimated to a lot of the nonsense that it's a weird, once again it's a weird choice it is it's it, what's strange about it is the more time you spend with man and woman or uh, Everett McGill and Wendy Robbie in this movie the the weirder it gets so it's it's like a it's almost like a a base level uncomfortableness mm. that you get with yeah. them in the beginning and then that just opens up more but it, like I can't remember many horror movies that do that sort of all oh, right now we'll switch to the baddies yeah now we'll switch to the goodies now, like that so early on in the movie yeah it's, it's quite a jarring jump cut to go from this setup that the that this young boy is now a burglar to then mm-hmm. cut to the house of the people that they're ultimately going to burgle i, I yeah. would much rather the introduction to mommy and daddy came when spencer visits or when a fool visits the house as the boy scout yeah what I would say that it does is that it plants a couple of seeds uh, about things that means that they won't have to fully explain them later. Because we do see a little bit about the fact that... Because um, we also, like I said, we're talking about uh, kind of mommy and daddy Robson here. But also, yeah, they've got their daughter, air quotes, Alice. Sure. Mm-hmm. So we kind of get a little bit of an insight into their relationship and how that's kind of quite draconian and quite disciplinarian. But also, <laughs> yeah. there's this allusion to the fact that she's been feeding the thing between the walls. So it kind of... Like you're kind of like primed to expect some little, a little bit more of that. I, I'm not sure if it does more harm than good to introduce them, but like this early on. But I think it does answer some questions in advance in a way that kind of makes that of like the eventual clash of those characters a little bit cleaner. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. You find out that they they're ultimately you find that from this scene straight away they're the landlords. So like that they have a, a conversation specifically talking about there's only one family left, which I mean you can extrapolate straight away. Well, that'll be Phil's family. Mm-hmm. Uh, one family left holding the last building that they need to essentially vacate in order to get some wholesome families in there yeah. and jack the price up for money. And I mean that's you know and more money. Um, Everett McGill's saying oh. as he's munching on the carcass of something. Um, I never really know. It's a lot of ribs. Mitch, that's like when Daniel Clamp's trying to get rid of Mr. Wing in Gremlins 2. Yes, mm. it is like that. Yes, that is a, that's, a, that's a solid comparison. Um, so they're kind of casing the joint trying to hack this robbery. Fool uh, is the first stop under the guise of uh, selling cookies as a Boy Scout. See, just before uh, Mitch, though, there's a bit where Fool visits uh, Leroy's apartment. And it's the Uh seediest place in the world. There's people shooting up in the corridors and every stairwell. But this is the point where we learn that what they're actually going to the house to get is treasure from a map in the form of gold. Yes, yeah, the Robsons have gold coins on their property. Yeah, goodies again. Now that you've mentioned it, but yeah, that, that, and yeah, I, I found a treasure map. I robbed this. Yeah. I robbed this. Um, I think it's a liquor store or a, a, a garage. He says, um, <laughs> and the when he's robbing that, he finds that the person 
who owns the garage also is the landlord and there's a map that just happens to be there which highlights treasure as if you owning your own house would need a map to where you stored all your money <laughs> it's exactly like the goonies if sean yeah. Aston's big brother wasn't josh brolin and was in fact a black drug dealing pimp <laughs> i'd watch that movie yeah, yeah. Um, in a second um but yeah, fool's the first one up to try and kind of uh, to try and crack this and get in there, masquerading as a Boy Scout selling cookies. This does not go over. Uh, Mommy Robeson is having none of this. Vanishes him. Um, at this point, even we... when he wants the toilet, he's like, uh, he uses the old uh, "Can I at least use your bathroom?" She's like, "Fuck off!" And well, she's literally, she's literally, she's two seconds away from pulling out the shotgun. Honestly, it's, it's brittle. It is. It's incredible. It's incredibly hostile. But at this point, he he goes back to uh, he he goes back to the uh, the the van defeated. And at this point, we meet uh, Leroy's associate Spencer, who is not someone I would trust my kids with. <laughs> Spencer, played by Jeremy Roberts, who's brilliant at this as well, because he's like, I never send a boy to do a man's job. Um, and he he does the what would be the obvious scam to get in the house. I don't know how they thought. Boy Scout selling cookies will get him in to case the joint. I, I mean, I also should... wrote this down. I was like, because he goes back posing as a gas company worker for which he has a costume mm-hmm. and a fake ID. I was like, they very much should have tried this first. First, yeah, like I, I don't know, like I, I was never in the Boy Scouts, so I didn't have to go door to door selling cookies. But I can't remember getting a, a house tour when you know. Do you see it? The scene that's amazing about this is that. He's walking in the back garden. She opens the door, comes out, and basically, like, can I help you? And when he turns around, she then runs behind the door, closes the door, and then opens a little window and sticks her head out. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I would also be inclined to do if I, if I was our, our villains here? I would be inclined to wait an hour. Yes. yes. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, like, don't immediately send in plan B the second that plan A fails. Yeah. yeah, like Ving Reams is going to dress up like a Jehovah's Witness next and ask them if they've the good news. You know what I mean? <laughs> Absolutely. I love the fact also that uh, Leroy is sufficiently confident in uh, Spencer's credentials as both an associate and a criminal that he is willing to kind of try and pull off this gold coin heist with him and this 13-year-old child. But then he is literally out of the van for two minutes before Leroy becomes so incredibly overtaken by paranoia that Spencer is going to sell him down the river and keep all the gold for himself, that he insists that both he and the aforementioned 13-year-old child go into the house after him. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a bit suspicious. I mean, he... like The thing is, as well, like, what, what we get is that he kind of forces his way through kind of false pretenses of a meter being inside the house, and she's like, well, there definitely isn't. And he's like, well, you might not know it's there. And by the way, legally... I can come in here unless you want me to phone the police. And she clocks that he's wearing like a skull ring. <laughs> and she's like, you're not who you say you are. But uh, of I course, don't get come that. in. And, uh, and then a couple of minutes later, she drives away in the car, which once again, seems a bit strange. Uh, and you know what I mean? And then straight away, like Leroy is like, the conspiracy's in. This guy's, he's made off with the gold. He's going to screw me out of this. And I'm like, well, why are you partnered up? With the, that, that's not a good thieving relationship if you instantly doubt your companion. That's not good. Exactly. No, I was, I was like, you have pivoted to that so quickly. I mean, that would be like you inviting me on this podcast, Mitch, and then getting two minutes into it and then think I'm stealing Andy for my podcast. 
<laughs> like straight away, like whoa, 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 whoa. What, what are you doing to? Is that what Andy for? <laughs> is that what this is? You son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> it's like instant, and I, I love it as well because we do, like it just leaves it there that we know that something's probably you know happened with Spencer. We don't know what, but we know there's probably something not great happened. Yes, with Spencer, and you know the movie takes a bit of time to show us what that is, which I kind of like. It's just like remember that Spencer guy. Wait till you see him later. Yeah, aha. Uh-huh. So Leroy and Fool both go in in search of Spencer and indeed the gold that they think he's hoarding. <laughs> so Leroy heads upstairs, Fool heads to the basement, but before this, um, Leroy has to break a door down. Sure. Uh, he successfully does that, brags about the fact that no door has ever defeated him, and then gets attacked by a dog. Yeah, trusty crowbar. Trusty crowbar always for the win. But let me once again pivot this here. If you have to crowbar a door open and when you do that, all of a sudden... All these shutters move out the way to reveal windows which still have fences, cagings and bars on them. You're not starting to think, maybe, maybe this is not a good idea. What I would also say is if you have an enormous steel security door that's easily breached by one man with a crowbar, <laughs> then invest in a better steel security door. It is one of those moments where you're like, that crowbar did that. <laughs> also, uh, I love that when the dog attacks Leroy... Uh, <laughs> Phil leaps to his defence and turns the dog's attention on himself in that classic way by insulting the dog's mother, implying that it fucks cats. (laughs) (laughs) No self-respecting dog could possibly continue in the face of such provocation. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He was fine. It was like, you don't do your mama jokes in front of a dog. does not go down well. No. Really pushes their fucking buttons. <laughs> <laughs> this, 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 this goes... I, this is already kind of lurking around in dark territory. We've already had a 13-year-old wade through a crack den and end up being complicit in a, lob- in a robbery. But <laughs> and, this, ins- and insult a dog's mother. And insult a dog's mother. But um, this, this film is darker, faster. Like, super fast. Because, yeah, Fool heads to the basement. He is understandably uh, spooked by the voices down below. Heads down regardless. He's like he's not going to be uh, chided. He's not going to have his masculinity questioned. He heads straight mm-hmm. down there. Whole load of creepy shit in the basement, including my personal <laughs> favourite, which is archive TV footage from the war on a permanent loop on an old TV. <laughs> in fairness, Mitch, it's an attack on Baghdad, so it's probably quite timely uh, in terms yeah. of the era that the film was made. We're just going to loop it and loop it and loop this it. This might, in fact, be the news. <laughs> it's just, it's true. Well, I, lo- I, love, I love this idea of them making sure that the people under the stairs are kept up to date with world events. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want to shut them off completely. You've already cut out their eyes and their tongues and their, cut off their fucking ears. Like, yeah. <laughs> you need to give them something. Yeah, God, what's yeah. going on in the world? It's a form of psychological torture. It's just Fox News on a loop. Yeah, mm-hmm. I just Tucker Carlson the entire time. <laughs> oh God, <could> you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Fool, at like the 25 minute mark, at the absolute most in this film, has suffered more than most horror protagonists in history. <laughs> and he, he now discovers a dead body. Spencer's dead body, specifically. Mitch, can I point out, by the way, something that I've talked about fairly recently? A lighter is not a reasonable light source. No, you're quite right. You're quite right. And, I, and, and, and Andy, I for one am sick of it. Yeah, yeah, get it, get it out of your films, people, please. It is not a legitimate 
practical source of enough light to guide you through any mm. kind of environment. It gets too hot too quick, you'll burn yourself. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's, 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 it's both implausible and unsafe. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And Spencer here, once again, kind of maybe owing to the David Lynch Twin Peaks worship here that um, that Craven kind of has in casting here. Spencer has kind of went the way of um, Rewise in, in Twin Peaks, and that his hair is now pure white, um, mm. and he's he's died of fear um, and being bitten and other things like death. <laughs> sure. He died of death and fear and being bitten and stuff. He's died, he's, he's died of a combination of natural causes, fear, being cannibalised. <laughs> <laughs> Presumably falling down that staircase that's actually a slide. It's difficult to know what actually did it. Oh, yeah. Once again, another detail where you're just like, really? <laughs> the stairs turn into a slide. Yeah. That's good to know. The sheer um, mechanics of all this, it's on par with like the collector or John Kramer. <laughs> like who so has the got any money left? Who has the fucking time? Um, yeah, it, like, no wonder the door wasn't a great door if you're installing your house with this high-tech security system. You don't spend all that money on the, the steel door at the end. It's all the gadgets you've got inside. Yeah, you got a cut corner somewhere, don't you? I also I also wrote down that if my house was this intensely booby trapped, I would almost definitely accidentally kill myself. Oh, you'd be dead. I'd be dead as well. I would have forgotten. Like within, with, I still I stubbed my toe on the end of the bed, and I've been in this house for a year, and I know hmm. where my I know where the end sure. of the bed is, and I still stub my toe. You get up in the night, Mitch, blow your dick off in the toilet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just like like I like I accidentally impale myself to the wall just like while trying to make pasta while pissed. You know, like it's just like an absolute minefield. I mean, like realistically, I'll do myself enough of a fucking mischief trying to make pasta when I'm steaming anyway, even if the kitchen isn't booby trapped. I, I just love the idea of the police coming uh, to investigate the the crime scene and be like that. Oh yeah, it was death by booby trap. Yep, that's what it was. Uh, I clearly forgot it was there behind the kitchen sink. <laughs> um, he, was, he, he was putting the water in, in to make the pasta, and yeah, that spike came out there and impaled him. It's, an inc- it's an incredible feat of engineering, but he's also a <laughs> fucking moron. <laughs> <laughs> At this point, he is also set upon by a gaunt, unknown assailant, and then a swarm of pale children amass, and we get our first look, however briefly, at the titular people under the stairs. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They kind of all look like they should be in, like maybe a zombie Nirvana cover band, or one of those weird, mm-hmm. like one of those weird vampire films where they're all kind of gone, like um, like Luke Goss and Blade. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This seems like as good a point as any to point out that I think that this film's title places the emphasis on a weird part of the story. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Because I understand that they're there and they end what would up. What do you call important. it then? But they have about a grand. They have about a total of about three minutes of screen time. What would you call it yep. then, Mitch? Gold hoarding sister fucker. Gold hoarding sister fucker. Yes, Wes Craven's gold hoarding sister fucker. If you don't start an industrial project <laughs> of music called that, Mitch, I will think less of you. Your name. A DJ, a DJ pseudonym that plays only dark industrial goth. But Mitch, I would suggest you phone your sister first. Yeah, just <laughs> give her a heads up. <laughs> oh, oh, look, I'm doing something. It's a little bit avant garde. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, don't go in the booby trap house. <laughs> 
much they it's did. It's called a, that for a reason. They did a bunch of films. They're technically not under the stairs. But they are. Either. They are. Kinda a little bit. Most of them are in the walls and beside the furnace. <laughs> Um, the people you know I mean? beside the furnace. The downstairs you know? furnace. The downstairs furnace adjacent children. And yeah, and, and why does and why does the the treasure map not have a lot of dotted like, mutant kids listed as yeah, you know? Because yeah, like, yeah. the, the the safe is right in there, which I would I would argue with you that if you are even Everett McGill or Wendy Robert putting money in there is risky absolutely and you're safe guys I've you got it you, you have a chance of putting your hand out to drop a gold coin in there and drawing back a bloody stump mm. guys I've got it the pale oh. disfigured children in the death house <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I've seen that Jallo <laughs> I was just going to say I was just going to make a Lucia Fulci joke yeah, sure, I've seen that one. 70, 74, 75, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A great year. Um, okay, so he gets out of the basement to his infinite credit, fool. Um, but at this point, the Robesons return. If this has happened in real time, their trip out was very brief. Yeah. Um, fool finds Leroy, and at this point, I think it's really funny that it takes ages for him to actually tell him that Spencer's died, because he's like, he's like a, you're going to stick your head in there and lose it, like Spencer. And then it's like, mm-hmm. oh, what did he find down there? And he's like, well, something found him. And he's like, yeah. what do you mean? He's like, oh, sorry. Perhaps I wasn't being clear. Spencer's dead. Yeah. And they come running out like that. Oh, my God, what's going to fuck out here? Spencer's dead. Spencer's dead. His hair's gone white. His hair's gone white. Something in his hands. Uh, so uh, the Robesons are on their way back and they have to formulate a plan really quickly. Uh, Leroy continuing his hot streak of setting a positive example wants to use a child as bait. Sure, yep. sure, sure, and he's immediately attacked. Yeah, I mean, once again, Leroy is the sort of guy that not only has employed a 13-year-old as a thief, mm-hmm. like, three seconds after meeting him, but in the journey to the house, has <laughs> noted to little Leroy that 13 is an awkward age because you are too old for the tit and too young for the ass. Correct. Sure. <laughs> yeah, which, once again, great line, but this is a 13-year-old. Yeah, um, <laughs> read the room. He's also berated you know, him for being a little sissy because he was too scared to go down and investigate the basement. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like like Phil is easily easily the the bravest person in any in, film. He's thirteen. Yeah, in any film ever. I was gonna say in the history of cinema, exactly. Yeah. Um. Ultimately, in the ensuing struggle, Leroy is killed by Daddy Robson, and at this point, the Robson confirms uh, the Robsons confirm my suspicion that they might be the villains of the piece by literally dancing on his dead body. <laughs> Do you know what's hilarious before that? When uh, Phil tries to escape while they're all getting attacked by the dog and he grabs the door handle which is electrocuted in hilarious oh, yes. Home Alone fashion it electrocutes him, Leroy and hilariously the dog I will say the dog <laughs> acting here is absolutely brilliant The dog does look like it has been shocked and falls over There's four dogs, like, I can only imagine that they, they got the one that was uh, the uh, I guess the twitchiest Sure. Um, <laughs> just a on your resume. What do you bring to it? Well, I'm twitchy. Ah, electrocution scene, you see. <laughs> this dog is a tweaker. We've got three really strong actors in the, the Rottweilers, and then their brother, who's just a bit. <laughs> they're kind of... Why is this dog called Twitch? <laughs> um, they, they kind of just brought him because they had to include their brother. 
Yeah. Um, Fool escapes upstairs and meets Alice at this point. We get a kind of insight into, despite the fact that Alice is not a stair person, um, as as the subtitles called them, but I don't know if they were ever called that in the actual film. But we realize that despite the fact that she's not a stair person, she has led an extremely sheltered life. She has uh, never been outside, I don't think, or certainly is heavily discouraged from going outside ever, and has also never met a black person. I would also yeah. say that it's quite possible that she's been abused by daddy because there's a moment oh, where he, God, yes. where she's like shackled up and yep. he does a weird crotch grabbing thing. There's a scene where Wendy Robbie basically comes in and removes him from the room. You know what I mean? Like, And that's after the crotch grabbing and all the rest. She comes in and then takes him out of the room. Um, which is, I mean, that's just one of those little, once again, knowing, like the more you read into Craven and the more... Wes Craven movies you watch like infinitely fascinating director but he expertly knows how to just plant the seed of something in a movie which will when you just pause yourself think about it for a second takes on the most sinister turn ever because it like this is on top of all the other things you've seen oh by the way there's a very good chance that you know there's you know there's pedophilia in this movie as well and this is off the back of earlier on where i mean we, we skipped over that but like the the idea that like, alice lives in hell there's a scene where early on in the movie um wendy robbie comes to get the plate yeah mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. she's taken it away and she realizes the fork is missing and the the kind of the, the kind of inflated scene that comes out of this that you know that kind of the, where's the fork and all the rest and that scene closes out with you know, Robbie saying to McGill, you know, just don't bruise her face and him removing his belt and the door kind of closing. Yeah. And it's it's so horrifically dark mm. <laughs> that you it's weird because the humour, like with most Craven movies as well, the humour is it doesn't quite fit at all, but it's in here because Craven had a weird sense of humour. Yeah. Uh, but he's yeah, you know, it doesn't it doesn't quite fit with all the darkness, but weirdly I can't I I'd so need it because if it wasn't, this movie would be trauma. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was actually watching it again tonight and like we said, kinda obviously trying to be critical of it and watch it with that head on. And mm. I was struck actually by how jarring some of the comedy is in here because Yeah you're dealing with unremittingly bleak dark themes and then there's weird moments like where the dog like falls through a hole in the floor then slides along the floor <laughs> like there's moments where like a brick's dropped or, or people are hit with things and they're like that <laughs> like it's so fucking weird like there's a moment where fool punches a man in the dick and he, he comically rolls around on the floor it's, yep. there's just so many weird moments in it that are like yeah. there's this real slapsticky element to a lot of it that I found it hard on this watch Yeah, even though I like the film I find it hard on this watch to kind of reconcile how dark the actual storyline is with it's, these it's weird like moments of Last House on the Left though you know what I mean you watch Last House on the Left and that is as grim as grim gets, and then it cuts to the cops. It's yeah. You know what I mean? And they're driving along, and they can't find the house. The, and the stuff about the chickens. Flat and yeah, you're just like, what? What you? Do? And I think that's just. I don't think. I think Craven probably was a really, really, really funny guy, but I also think he. There's part of him that gets a kick out of just making people as uncomfortable as possible. Hundred percent. And his eye. And he was older. Remember, he was older than all the other. He came to filmmaking late, so he was like, I think he was in his mid-30s when he made uh, Last House on the Left, so 
he, he has a, there's a weirder kind of older kind of sense of humour mm-hmm. that he has that does not play all that well in 1991 but like I say if it's not in here then what do you have in this movie but a collection of the grimmest scenes ever filmed in 1991 yeah I mean this gives this gives Silence of the Lambs like you were talking about Silence of the Lambs earlier on and I was thinking this movie's more effed up it really when you cut it down like you get you put Buffalo Bill against man and woman. Man and woman are more depraved. It needs it needs levity, I think. Yeah, it does. It does. It, it's just the choice of the slapstick stuff. At times, it, it works. And then, like you say, other times when you... And it's the cartoon noise of someone shaking a head. And you're like, what? Yeah. Eh? Uh, it's, it, is, it is strange. Like, um, But, like, yeah, we can get into the tonal confusion of it a little bit more as yeah. we go on because i think that like mm-hmm. there's more kind of like on... weirder things is what you're saying yeah there's more i was gonna, I was gonna say there's more on the nose examples but yeah it gets more fucked up uh alice handily drops some exposition on us she says that no one has ever escaped the house uh the children that are in the basement have been put there because they have broken the house rules which are broadly it's kind of a see no evil hear no evil speak no evil yeah. type arrangement Mitch, um, before that though it's important to say that the reason they're there in the first place is that mu- the man and woman mummy daddy they're looking for a son yeah and they're and they're and they're like abducting they're effectively abducting children yeah. uh, like in the name of in the in the name of that um we also find out at this point uh, a little bit more about the thing in the walls which is namely um a stair person called roach who's escaped in his net or he's escaped from the basement and he's now roaming around in the space between the walls and the house and uh yeah one of the more arresting visuals if you like of the film here when we see uh daddy robeson man in uh, his hunting attire, which is an elaborately studded gimp costume. Yeah. <laughs> Apropos of nothing, he busts in wearing a gimp costume, but I was in a shotgun, and it's fucking hilarious. I, yeah. I was <laughs> so confused when that happened. See, consider, consider, see, because we hadn't really seen Roach yet. See, when it was like, oh, like, he's hunting him. He's like, I'm going to get him. And then you just saw a guy in a gimp costume. I was like, hang on a minute. Is that him or is that Roach? Obviously, Imagine it was it Roach. fairly Imagine. obvious fairly quickly, but you know. Imagine how weird it would have been if that was Roach in the walls dressed like that and you also had Daddy running about with his shotgun. <laughs> um, fair play to Alice here. When this all kicks off, despite the fact that she's obviously living in constant fear of um, kind of abuse and different kinds of uh, physical and psychological sadism, she does still help Fool to make, uh, make himself scarce or at least tries to. More just kind of casual cartoon villainy as a uh, woman, Molly Robeson, feeds Prince the dog a bloodied human hand. Sure. Yep. yep. As you do. Dog just eats hands. <laughs> That's fine. Um, also, I don't condone violence against animals, but I've got to give Fool some props for literally punching a dog in the face to make his escape as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't, he must have a, some right hook, I'll tell you. That's, that, is, that is not a dog that no. <laughs> you want to be punching. Yeah, uh-huh. We do get a little kind of proper meeting with Roach here, and he can't really introduce himself because his tongue's been cut out. So presumably he spoke some evil. Sure. Yeah, well, uh, th- Sean Whalen here, who, like, if ever a guy had a face for, and I love him to bits, yeah. but I've got a signed autograph from Sean Whalen, and he, he's, he's, like, he's one of these guys that really embraced that role, like, like after. Like, really, really, really embraced it. And, um, I mean, he's in what he's late 20s, early 30s here, apparently playing a. Like a kid. Oh, really? Roach. Yeah, yeah. Roaches. I think Roaches. Like, because everyone under the stairs is supposed to be like a teenager, and none of them are uh, <laughs> like at all. Um, but yeah, like, there's a weird thing about him because he's a, a like a he has the look of 
of what you would like see when you see like what people do for creepy pastas nowadays when people do drawings of things from creepy but basically they're drawn roach it's the right. kind of like maniacal smile on a very very thin face yeah and pale as death um and his tongue has been removed and it's not a great visual effect in hd i'm afraid time's not been kind to that visual effect but it is still i mean the, the kind of nonchalant way where he's like that don't you don't talk much and he literally just like sticks his stumpy tongue out and then and imitates the chopping off of the tongue and kind of just shrugs his shoulders and you're like I would be more traumatised than that. Uh, I actually think Sean Whelan brings an amazing amount of pathos to this character, oh, particularly so later, yeah. like when, like yeah. after he he gets injured in the walls. Like, I I think he I think he's brilliant for for not having a single line of dialogue and mm-hmm. just having this real manic but really caring, considerate character who manages to get so much across without saying anything. Yeah. Yeah, because he's not went full cannibal either. So he's the one that um, Alice has been feeding in the walls. Um, so he's not really part of the the kind of um, Johnny Grunge band downstairs. Yeah, he's kind he's he, he's kind of his own thing. And yeah, you're right. There, I mean, there's a, there's a great character arc for him in this movie, which is weird considering once again what this movie is, who he is. And the fact he has no dialogue at all, it's, it, it works really, really well. Yeah. I, I think, once again, you juxtapose all the weirdness and all the strangeness and the slapstick humour, and then there's just the elements that you go, that's really clever, that's really well done. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Eventually, though, um, the three of them, Alice, Roach and Fool, they're kind of like, uh, man finds them. Roach escapes into the walls, Fool and Alice not so lucky. Uh, they are respectively made to, Fool has to drag Leroy's dead body around and Alice has to mop up Leroy's blood. And I just want to think, I was like, Jesus Christ, man, honestly, Wikipedia called this a horror comedy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, these kids yeah. are having to do really fucking horrible things all the time. For your amusement, Mitch. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Are you, are you not entertained? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was just, I was like, oh yeah, I can definitely mine this for lols. This is hilarious. <laughs> like, like, Alice gets thrown in a white, and she's wearing a white nighty or white dressing gown, thrown into the blood. Yeah. As well, mm. which she will later be chastised for and made to sit in his scalding bath. That's yes. horrible. That scene's that, fucking yeah. horrible. That's actually that's actually one of the scenes that sat the most uncomfortably with me in it when that happens. That really is horrible. Fool is, well, man kind of throws Fool to the stair people on the assumption that they will cannibalize and kill him, which I think is an extremely negligent lack of double tap from your boy. <laughs> he's he's terrible. He misreads every situation in this entire film. But as soon as I, I'm just going to lob him down there and presumably that'll take care of itself. No. Well, out of sight, I mean, out of mind. It was always <laughs> going to happen. I mean, when your choice of hunting attire is a gimp suit, you're already kind of on the line of maybe doesn't have the greatest the greatest sense of the room. You know? I, don't, I, don't, I don't imagine that that lends itself great to mobility. No. Oh, God, no. no is that <laughs> like, or peripheral vision. I know, also true. Yeah, you know what? In hindsight, it's the first of a handful of egregious tactical blunders from him. <laughs> really, let's aside down if you're honest. Yeah, uh-huh. you know what? Like, it's just like like when you look back at it's like at the kind of at the, at, the, at the full picture and the kind of the full play by play of this. It, it's like it makes for a grim reading. Yeah. 
There's a weak link in this chain, and sadly, once again, as history is told, as everything behind every silly man is a great woman. So, uh, because women is the by far the high intellect, the more cunning, the more vicious. Like, like overall, like oh, she she really is, and man is two steps away from being the dog. Realistically, she sets him on what she needs to do he goes and does yeah it. he's basically an attack dog you're quite right actually yeah yeah yeah, yeah. she's she's far more the kind of like uh, the brains of the operation mm-hmm. oh. i say there's a bit coming up here where uh roach comes back to rescue fool from the i guess from the other people under the stairs although he doesn't know that they're for the most part going to be benevolent with him i think he chooses an interesting way to do that because as far as he knows leroy is his good friend so for him to use Leroy, leroy's corpse as a kind of puppet in order to gain the trust of a 13-year-old boy is a strange decision to make. I, th- I-, I feel. <laughs> I mean, like, I, 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 just, I just don't have an answer for that. Well, we, t- we said earlier on, I find it really difficult to hate Ving Rhyme, so use him as a body puppet <laughs> to, to, to gain the trust of this small child. Look, it's your buddy, Ving Rhames. Everyone loves Ving Rhames. Charming even in death. <laughs> um, uh, Roach does help him escape after a fashion, uh, but Roach has also, in the struggle that we've just seen, uh, been shot. He is definitely going to die, and does. But before he does, he <laughs> does leave a message imploring Fool to rescue and save Alice and get her out of there. Scrolls it on what you can only imagine is the ash of burn bodies on the wall. Jesus Christ, man. Honestly, every time I think that this can't get any bleaker, somebody steps up. Oh, by the way, in case you're also wondering, Alice makes a commemorative soul dolls of all the dead children. <laughs> also true. Um, I, I want, like, I want to, like, fool newly kind of like obviously uh saddened by the abrupt death of his new friend by the way at this point minimum three characters that i assumed would be protagonists all turned up and then almost immediately died <laughs> <laughs> like this th- th- this film kills off like like introduces and kills off characters with an impunity that i have almost never seen in a film <laughs> it's almost as if it was written by george R. R. martin yeah you know what I mean, <laughs> or by George R. R. Martin. Just don't, just don't get, just don't get attached to any characters. Yeah, someone hangs around literally long enough for you to be like, ah, oh, they're they're all right, and then literally the next minute, gone. Yeah. I like this Spencer guy. I can't wait to see what he does. <laughs> I look forward to his long and storied contribution to this film. <laughs> Um, I want to, but uh, Fool, emboldened by this, uh, this, this go save Alice thing, uh, Fool has balls made of solid titanium. Can I just say that? Mm-hmm. Like, yes. we've already seen that um, man is quite happy to just like slaughter humans in his home for sport, and he still emerges from the gap in the walls and just punches him in the balls to try and buy them some time to get away. Yeah, punches him yeah. right in the cock and then smashes a lamp over his head. Yeah, <laughs> there's your double tap. Exactly, exactly. We could all learn a little bit from that. Alice and Fool lack Roach's um, cartographical understanding of the walls. (laughs) Uh, They get very quickly lost in there. I think I just made a word up there. Fool, I think again here, as uh, Man is trying to hunt them down, and I think it was at this point that I kind of uh, noted how impressed I am with the general kind of like physicality of everett mcgill's performance in this 
Yeah. Yeah. He's. I mean, he's a. He's a. He's not exactly like. See when you once again. See when you see him walking around, you don't expect the level of kind of slapstick. I mean, he is no Bruce Campbell, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Yet he is doing very Evil Dead esque sort of slapstick comedy in this role, mm-hmm. yeah. which I his characters instantly. His character's think, pure threat. Yeah. Oh, I definitely. You just don't expect that at all. But it, it's a very physical performance. Like from like, as soon as that <laughs> another sentence I didn't think it would be. Or as soon as the gimp suit goes on, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> yep. Like the the level of his body language completely changes and it takes on uh, like a combination of pure menace and slapstick comedy and it's like that is constantly battling it's mm. way through his performance from that point onwards that's like me when I put on a morph suit oh really yeah pure menace and slapstick comedy <laughs> Um, I want to talk more about the ingenuity of Fool here uh, because it's pretty savage, but he basically uh, he tricks man into uh, killing the dog and stabbing Prince, which is, like like I say, it's heavy as fuck, but it's genius. Yeah. Uh, but the moment where they realise that they haven't killed Fool and they've instead killed the dog is played for laughs in this really yes. weird way. Yep. <laughs> yeah, look at the dead dog after you've celebrated by dancing. Once again, dancing around. I've killed him. I got him. I got him. Yeah, right, yeah. He's just so, so happy. Yeah, he, he gets involved in a celebratory jig because he believes killed he's killed child. a child. Yes, because he's murdered a 13-year-old. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> if, if that's not a time to celebrate, I don't know what exactly. is. Yeah, but the, you get the... It, it speaks a lot to like the woman character here where she's basically like, like show me. Like, she that's can right. see the blood on the end of the bayonet and she's like show me and then there's a weird thing where you think has he made this mistake before like the fact that she has to physically see the evidence mm. you know is this due to his lackluster nature earlier on in the film right just throwing sure. full up away to the the people under the stairs and, and not kind of following through to make sure the job's done or is this a common occurrence with man does he celebrate too early is what i'm asking yeah aha uh-huh. mm. like it's like like this better not be the same as last time because if it is yep. i feel like the fire cast by those dancing feet was pretty quickly quenched by the visual of your dead dog. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. It's a bit of a buzzkill. It's a somber river dance. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like a river dance to careless whisper. A dog. <laughs> <laughs> Fool, again, totally fearless, speculates about diving off the roof on the off chance he lands in the pool. He makes his escape with Alice's help swears that he will come back mm-hmm. yes yeah, um yeah. would you would you here's a question to both these like having survived what you've just survived which as we've argued before is maybe condensed into one afternoon what some soldiers would have seen in an entire tour in nam would you be eager to go back the same night um fool takes the gold <laughs> coins home because he's hoarded some of them in the middle of all the struggle and hmm. um he has been uh, he is told at this point that he has enough gold coins to uh, pay the rent on the house for the next nine years and also for his mum's operation what yeah, he's a told fucking by that, legend he's told that by the guy from demolition man yeah it's so so strange like once again like the the, the mother's got cancer right sure and we're like yeah these gold coins will cure this cancer i'm like this is the sort of fairy tale ending that i want but i don't think this movie deserves 
Wow, um, good point. Yeah, you know what I mean. It is. It is really like at this point you're like you've got the well that the coins will cure your mother and you know and they'll pay all the rent off. And I know why it's here. It's here to basically set up to say, listen, at this stage he doesn't need to go back and do anything. Yeah, right? you you yeah. you can end the movie here. Um, <laughs> at this point, you you've done your job. You've got what you set in to do. And now everything that Phil does on top of this is the true heroic part of this character. It's he's going back to rescue Alice from like the the worst place on earth. He's the hell gate that is this house. Mm. Um mm-hmm. and I, I like the setup, but it is that sort of, there is there is a weird sort of element there of well even even at the end and we'll get to the end which has one of the great Oh, this ending of this, but we'll get to it. Um, they kind of just smile and wave as a mutant walks down the street <laughs> in the free society. It's just so casually thrown yep. into this movie that it blows my head. Like literally, just explodes when I see that. But the the, the idea here that you know, like I say, that this gold is just going to solve it, like this money is just going to solve everything. I think is a weird, a weird message in this movie. Yeah. yeah. I, I, he could have quite easily said, "Fuck that girl and those cellar monsters." I've got what I came for out of sight, out of mind. But that, that's not fool. That's not. That's, that's not. not that's not how. That's not how this boy operates, lads. <laughs> Far from it. Far from it. Um, a crucial piece of exposition. Um, at this point, we had hitherto been led to believe that the Robsons were a married couple when they are in fact mentally unstable inbred real estate moguls. Yep. <laughs> Thunder's throwing confusion into the fact that they live in a in an old funeral home. <laughs> is that is that a trauma title? Mentally unstable. Inbred real estate moguls. Yeah, is that is that a trauma title? If it's not Lloyd Kaufman, you can have that for free. Yeah. Just put that out there. That is yours for free. And indeed, the sequel, Mentally Unstable, Inbred Real Estate Moguls Go to College. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love what happens next here, because rather than just immediately going back to heroically take them on by himself, in what is, I think, a commendable and not nearly... Like, not nearly seen often enough in films. Uh, it's an incredible piece of real-world circumventing of horror movie madness, where rather than being like, I need to go back and fight them immediately, he just phones child services. Yep. <laughs> I love that. responsible thing. I love he's a, he's that. Thi- yes, but the, the thing is, there is a hint here. Like, we don't know what those grades are, right? We don't know. Well, he's an aspiring but doctor. We do learn he that. He wants to be a doctor, so you get the feeling that this kid is really bright, and to be honest with you, like exactly what Mitch was saying. How many times you watched a movie where you're like that? Why did they not just? Well, he does here. He does. He's like that. I'll just, I'll just phone channel service. I love that. Um, it's great. I, I'm, I'm with you 100. percent Yeah. <laughs> and I, like, you're the first person that has made me think about that and thought, yes, yes, Wes Craven. Well done. Oh, I also love right that he asks his sister, like, to get involved in his plan, and she doesn't go. You're fucking 13. You're going nowhere near that house. <laughs> She trusts her thirteen-year-old <laughs> brother, who she knows has got balls like fucking watermelons. Yeah, yeah she, she trusts that boy to go back to that house and win the day. She has no doubt in her mind that he's going to succeed. She, yeah, she's like, she's like, if I was bringing together my own Ocean's Eleven crew, I would have full on. I'm putting that team together. I'd have eleven <laughs> fools. <laughs> um, the police turn up uh, dutifully uh, to the Robeson's house in their absolute droves and uh, gleefully take tea, biscuits, cream and sugar from these suspected child abusers mm-hmm. also I want to talk about this right just very quickly uh, man Daddy yes. Robeson 
who uh, I think is like, not for the entire time, but is lar largely communicates, certainly at his most feverish moments, in kind of like grunts and yes. poorly articulated cries, um, suddenly acquires the ability to talk like a regular man mm -hmm. and with a very level head to the investigating officers. But isn't that, I think there's a, once again, I don't know, I don't know if Wes Craven means this, but there is like that message of, well, white people, you know, the cops show up, there's all this like accusations, all this stuff, the cops show up, tea and biscuits, white people, and then they just leave. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it, like the, there's no real investigation here at all. No, no, you're quite right. And I mean, even when like they turn up and they find alice's room and they're like i thought you said you didn't have any kids and then they kind of feed them this line about them having a kid that died mm -hmm. they're just kind of like oh that's very sad nothing to see here bye yeah, I, it's just totally just it, it really really is and i think even like like everett mcgill's performance yeah i think he does enough to just dissuade any sort of suspicion at all on him and that is by just talking coherently yeah <laughs> like, mm -hmm. Yeah, he's, he seems well adjusted. Let's go. Yeah, incredibly low bar. Oh, let's get back to the car, Grabowski. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's, it's one of those, but I, 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 once again, I don't know if that's what Craven's putting in here. If he is, once again, I like it, but it, it does feel that way where he's just like, and you know, on top of that as well, look at this. Um, just to kind of continue my my little bit of social commentary, just in the background here, that they they don't that, like the police are nowhere near as thorough. Once again, kind of it's what makes this movie so like timeless in twenty twenty, because uh, it it leans into that it leans into a lot of the angst and struggles that are going on right now uh, with police. So I I think there there's a bit of that in there, either that or it is not meant at all, and we're reading. Well, I'm reading too much in it, but I'm going to give Wes Craven the credit. I'm going to give him Why the not? credit. Why not? Sure. You're not Wes. Sure. Happy with it. Credit. While this investigation's ongoing, Fool sneaks back in and hides in a kitchen cupboard, one of the most durable protagonists in horror history at this point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's on your Expendables list, isn't he? Really? 100%. The Expendables of horror, he is in there. Fool, you're in 100%, especially now. He's a grown adult man now. And a doctor. <laughs> Probably, yeah. Yeah, that kid can do anything he sets his mind to. They trick him into showing himself, uh, but again, just be because he's a complete badass, he fearlessly hammers the shit out of both of them with a fire poker and then takes off running. It's like they fool him by doing the creepiest thing. They, they play an old-fashioned real tape recorder of them doing, like, the Lord's Prayer. You know what I mean? So they're doing, like, a, like a, a prayer, and he goes up, and he pops his head in, and then realises he's been had. But he's walking around with this poker... And they're going to get it. And no fear. No fear from Phil. Love it. Nope. Nope. Not one bit. I love that. Um, but you're right. I mean, like, it is really creepy how they, they do the fake out with this reel-to-reel -reel recording of them doing the Lord's Prayer, <laughs> which presumably they just had lying around. I've got, just in case. Yeah. You never know. <laughs> um, but a crucial thing that uh, that Fool does at this point is that he uh, gets to the bottom of the stairs, opens a little control panel, and hits a button to release the downstairs basement door. Which, if I had a feral horde of cannibalistic children I was covertly hiding in my basement, I may not have the door release button be quite so clearly delineated, so it's quite so obvious <laughs> to the casual observer. If you had... <laughs> 
Andy, I don't have a basement, okay? My button to release my cannibalistic feral children uh, uh, whose tongues and eyes and ears I've gouged out um, <laughs> is quite a distance away from just, where yeah. it might easily be activated. I, I, I also don't have Ming's... I don't have Ming's labelled the same way. I label it the same way as I do my nasty porn on my computer yeah. in a folder called MISC. wonder what this miscellaneous button does. <laughs> Oh man, right. Yeah, sure, okay. Fucking hell. <laughs> um, Ford reveals to a trapped Alice that the Robesons aren't her parents. And they aren't even married. They stole her. And they're also inbred. Yeah, just to add things on. It's just like, I think that Alice, considering this incredibly sheltered and incredible, and like what is presumably an incredibly traumatic life that she's led, she sets herself to this information with like unbelievable sheer footedness. Yeah, she's like, man, like, and what you don't know is he, he was the third gunman on the grassy knoll, and women started COVID-19, um, you know, like, it's like, literally, yeah. like, the more details, they just keep piling it on, like, the, like, a, a Jenga of misfortune, How? like, it's, like, just, like, stacked yeah. so high with details that, just, like, they're already evil, we know that, but by the way. Yeah, but when the time comes, she's like, right, okay, cool, let's get out of here. She, that girl has seen so much fucking insanity in that house that there is nothing you could tell her that would surprise her in the slightest or that she would not believe. Like, all that, these things that you have just mentioned, fine, let's go. Let's hit the fucking road. Yeah, uh-huh. That's, that's so true, actually. Just be like, if you ever wondered why man behaves so erratically, it's because when he was 12, he had his essence stolen by a shape-shifting snake alien. Wow. She's the sort of person you'd want to cast in a real advertisement for I can't believe it's not butter. You know what I mean? Like, she's, she's the demographic. She's she's so not used to being shocked that I would want that facial reaction. This isn't butter, you see? You've, you've, you've lowered the bar of like, you've lowered the stakes to an unbelievable extent in one move there. She's just seen everything else. Um, you know what I mean? She's seen everything else. Yeah, she put, she's the kind of person who, when you take the blindfold off and you, she sees that actually it's Coke crystal clear. <laughs> she's like, <laughs> what? Tastes yeah. the same, mate. <laughs> oh, um, <laughs> um, right, I want to talk about the fact this is the only part where I feel like I feel like this film could have come in at five, ten minutes shorter, and I feel like where it loses some of the momentum for me, as Andy, you'll know better than most, as so often uh, films do. Can I take a guess? Go on. Protracted hunt and chase sequence. Protracted hunt and chase sequence. Where this eventually gets to is great, and some of the road to it is also great. But I do feel like I feel like I was watching this bit for about half of the runtime of the film. I, I mean, the movie's an hour and 40, which feels long for this sort of movie. Correct, I agree. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm 100% with you. And plus, we've already seen... The, the, kinda the negative aspect is we've already seen a protracted chase scene twice in this movie already with these characters. That's so true. It, it kind of feels... Because we've got that one setting as well, um, I don't know if it's just a case of, well, we'll do it again to raise the stakes. And you are right, the combination of it is great, but you're not really seeing much here. Uh, I'm just stressing the much here because there are things you've not seen in the movie yet but the, you're not seeing much out with what you've seen already mm. and it kind of does lose a bit of steam even though it is a chase scene weirdly yeah I think after the bit in the chimney it runs a little bit dry for me yeah, yeah. the chimney bit where they're dropping cinder blocks onto their heads is very home alone isn't it <laughs> yes. 
yes. Like, He'd be like, fucking dead. Also true, yeah, yeah. You could totally do like what they do, like that YouTube video that counts all the times that the wet bandits would have died in Home Alone. Yes. You could do that mm-hmm. with this, I think, uh, to a certain extent. At this point, the house is descended upon by disgruntled tenants, um, yes. spearheaded by uh, Ruby and uh, their grandpa. Alice also, I just, I just want to shoot through the absolute kind of like bullet points of the sequence because it does take a while. And Alice drops in from the roof and knocks Mommy out. Sure. Uh, they s- like ramble. Yeah. Um, and the stair people direct Fool to a vault full of money, which is also mm-hmm. flanked by an absolute pile of dynamite. Yes, because that's where you store your dynamite. And also, not only that, they are savvy enough to let them know that it is booby-trapped as well. And it has three wires, and Phil somehow knows which wire to cut. Once again, leaning into the fact it. that Phil is just on a different level than everyone he is. else. He is. But then, that's the perfect place to store your dynamite, because you want to keep your money dry, right? But <laughs> similarly, you want to keep your dynamite dry. Keeping your dynamite dry keeps it vital. Here. He's making good points. I mean, yeah. I mean, okay. The stair people charge mommy at this point. She comes to you fairly quickly, but then she she literally, actually, this is one of those things where, like, it's not a real stabbing. Like, she actually does run onto a knife. Yeah, after, like, maybe my favourite... Like, this is what I'm talking about. There are certain scenes in this movie, like, when I watched it as a kid, the scene of her going into... <laughs> Like Alice goes into the kitchen uh, after the doors are all being locked, and um, Wendy Robbie's got her back to her. She's like, she says, "You know, I, I see you." And Wendy Robbie turns around, lifts this giant blade, and like, like a scene from Psycho, comes tearing at her. But with this, the scream is is up there with scream queens. Like you usually hear that sort of scream come from the you know the the protagonist as opposed to the antagonist. But she comes tearing at her with this knife, viciously trying to kill mm-hmm. her. And it is like, as like, I've already seen this one try to do the, the loose math here. I would have been 10 maybe when I saw this movie, maybe 11. Okay. That terrified the ever loving fuck out of mm-hmm. me. Like, genuinely terrified me. And it's once again, this scene, it's the first time you actually truly see the mask slip from her into pure lunacy. Because everything she's done before up to this point is on some level still kind of grounded in some weird sort of lucid sort of sanity mask. Yeah, there's... Even though what she's doing is terrifying, you know, it's uh, she keeps her composure until this Yeah, point. there's been a measure of calculation to it, and yeah, like a little bit of restraint to it up until now, and you're right, this is the first time you see her kind of like fully descend. Speaking of things that are terrifying, right around about this point as well, the people under the stairs, they start kind of busting through the walls and through the cupboards <laughs> and through the floor. This, I think this is legitimately nightmarish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, this is this is this is the kind of like this is the end point of the hunt and chase that I wish it took it didn't take quite so long to get to, but uh, yeah. because because you're right. I mean, like the actual visual and the sequence where that is happening is simultaneously you're like, yeah, fuck those guys. But also when it's happening, you're like, this is also really pretty scary. These are cannibals, remember? Mm-hmm. Disfigured, mutilated cannibals that are now tearing down the walls and the stairs to get at their captor. And they, they get kind of vicious with it. And she, like you mentioned before, she inadvertently runs into the old knife, mm-hmm. um, which still doesn't stop her removing the knife and then pursuing Alice again with another scream, yep. which is, once again, just terrifying. And then, like, a scene straight from, like, Romero's Day of the Dead gets hauled down and and, uh, and they go to town with her. But 
you know, that's not the the last we're going to see a woman as she is flung down the stairs in a heap in front of her brother lover. Um, <laughs> you know I mean, it's the only way I could describe him, really. Yep, yep, the only way. But yeah, I mean, we're, we're pretty much there at this point. I mean, um, mm-hmm. uh, Fool, in his final act of heroism, uh, detonates the dynamite, a blast which uh, kills man, but also... By the way, th- that thing he does with the candle with the coins in it, that's pretty clever. Yeah. That was pretty yeah. fucking sweet, wasn't it? <laughs> um, but yeah, ultimately detonates everything, causes money to rain from the sky. You see loads of notes I would have liked to have seen, more people being hit by coins. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just like referees at an old firm game. Yeah, exactly. Um, and at that point, yeah, the the, the Robsons are dead. All the mutants just walk away. Yeah. There's a scene where the guy that does look like Kurt Cobain's zombie uh, kind of looks and makes eye contact with Phil and gives him a wink and a nod. And what you expect is like some cheesy 80s theme music to play over the top mm-hmm. with that wink and the camera to freeze. It is one of those. Is that what's happening now? We're just like the mutant cannibals are just roaming the streets. Where are they going? It's not going to be easy for them to reintegrate. No, no, no. <laughs> I, 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 I mean, like, the, the, yeah, like the, um, uh, the, like the sequel, this, this, the, the sequel of this would be directed by Michael Haneke, and it would not be as fun. Yeah, but like, I, I just imagine them going home. Like they've been missing from their actual family for maybe five years, and all you want is your kid to come back, and then your kid shows up. And you know he's a cannibal. He's a he's literal monster. An ear. Yeah, missing an ear and an eye. Was uh, it with a thirst for human flesh? I, I mean, I'm just saying you might take a step back before that. I want a Netflix anthology miniseries where we see a different one of the people under the stairs trying to reintegrate every week. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, I think it does. Uh, it does bear mentioning that uh, the film does end with a horde of feral cannibalistic savages wandering out of a house and back into society and we're all expected to celebrate that fact total chuds it really it, it really really almost is. by definition the actual acronym really does uh, apply to these children you're quite right Bear I mean, mind. It does. they're children they are children yeah. yeah yeah jesus christ man that's heavy as fuck that's like the darkest happy ending <laughs> ever like 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 you said like like the the, the utter euphoria of getting out of that house and back into society is going to be incredibly short-lived. When the sun rises on a new day, the grim reality of having to reintegrate into a judgmental society is going to hit all of them like a fucking 10-ton dozer. Well, to draw another Goonies comparison, right, it might actually be quite easy for them because if you remember at the end of Goonies, Sloth is easily welcomed into a family. Yes. Like, without question. If Chunk was my son and he was like, by the way, this is our new pal, this is Sloth, he lives with us now, he might also weirdly be my lover because we have a strange relationship. Like, (laughs) I would be like, I would be like, Lawrence, can we have a chat? He's Quick sidebar, he's... please. You have dropped this on me. Like, I remember my mum used to get annoyed, right, when my pals would come over and then I'd just drop on. Oh, by the way, they're just going to stay. She'd be like, look, I would oh, really yeah, rather that you ran this by that. me before yeah, putting really, me really, really yeah, hated that. Like in this position. It's like a very, very extreme example of that. Yeah, but yeah. it's like, uh, by the way, the seven-foot muscular monster now lives in our house. We don't know what Andy's friends were like when he was a kid. Seven foot muscular <laughs> monsters. <laughs> <laughs> Who I might also have been in a sexual relationship with. <laughs> you can understand my mum's concerns. 
And with that, we are out on the people under the stairs. Duncan! Yes? A fine, fine choice, this. Um, it's been on my list for a really long time. Uh, I kind of feel like it's something that I should have gotten to by now uh, from a proper kind of critical perspective. Um, I'm very glad that I have, and, and as ever, I'm very glad that I'm talking about it in this with this combination of people. This never stops being fun. I hope that you'll join us again, presumably in approximately a year from now, to do another one. But yeah, huge thanks for picking this. I had a great time with it. I think it is very... Like Andy said, I think it is tonally confused in the sense that the subject matter and what actually plays out on screen is incredibly heavy and sometimes really very on the nose and disturbing. But the tone of the film is almost like a Goonies style uh, kind of kids adventure movie because it's shot from his perspective to such an extent. Andy, any fresh perspectives on this viewing or anything that you'd like to add? You've kind of um, echoed what I said earlier there, and I, I, I do stand by that, that the, the tone of it is all over the place, but it's fucking great. Oh, yeah, yeah. I actually think there's a lot of fun to be found in here, and amongst the intense misery yeah, of it all, uh, there is some fun to be found. And, I think, and like, I think a lot of that does come from the fact that you've got a really strong child actor holding, pretty much holding it all together, and then two lead antagonists who are having an absolute ball. Wendy Roby has said that it's one of the her favourite roles that she's ever done. I believe that. Um, yeah, and I, I just think they're clearly having a great time. It's clear that Brandon Adams is having a great time as well. Yeah. And I think it's quite easy to get swept up. And I think that's why when I watched it when I was a little boy on, on VHS, I think that's why that it was a film that got the best response is because we were children on the side of a child. Mm-hmm. And if the Goonies had been this unremittingly bleak, I think we would still have had a great time watching it when we were children because we can relate. We we're children and of a similar age and a and there's a whole lot that doesn't like is that way where you once again when you approach movies as an adult and you start to understand more of what's going on in a movie, like when you watch this as, as a kid, uh, this is a kid like going up against these horrible people to try and do things but as an adult you start to notice scenes which insinuate paedophilia you start to really pick up on the fact that there's incest in this movie all those things that i was going to say come along with life experience but all those, things that <laughs> all those to, classic you know, all rites those, of passage yeah all those things that start to come out where you know you you understand what the movie's conveying in the background and sometimes directly in the forefront but like I'm saying, when I was 11, I didn't know what says what you know what I mean? All these things, oh, yeah. like when you, on a re a rewatch as an adult, you start to pick out all this. As to me, it is infinitely bleaker as an adult than it was when I watched it as a kid. Oh, it was like yeah. this, sure, you know, far more comedic, quote unquote, kind of slapstick at times, very jarring, dark horror mm-hmm. movie. Which as an adult is, you know, like I, I see everything that's crammed in here, and it probably shouldn't work. It, sh- it if anything. There should be, like, if you're building a house of cards for the people under the stairs, there are so many times that things are put in this that should topple the house of cards. So there's not one card too yeah. many. Mm. Um, but for whatever reason, it doesn't all work, and it doesn't have to work, it, but it holds better together than a lot of movies. And it comes in at a time period where, I mean, this to me feels like, um, the production on this started in the 80s, and it feels like it would be probably more at home in the 80s and it would the 90s you noted like you're one year removed from well one year away from a, a, a massive turn with silence of the lambs i think misery came out the same year as it's this. certainly it's the same ballpark yeah like there's already a shift 
towards kind of more serious was it, what they call them psychological thrillers yeah. as opposed yeah. to horror yeah, movies. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's when something is a bit too good for mainstream critics to comfortably call it a horror film, so they have to call it aye. something else. So you're, you're on that cusp of like closing out a very kind of like that the is ropey towards the end of the day and this movie feels like a weird hangover but it's already the fact it's tackling an urban setting with black characters weirdly makes it very very much 90s because mm. we get a, a, a thrust of that in the 90s and this is at the forefront of that yeah, but only two so years away from Candyman as well yeah it's a, a weirdly pioneering movie in that respects as well and that it's kind of it's kind of setting the stage for a theme that's going to come back over and over again throughout the decade, mm-hmm. just done in a very strange, dark, goofy way. Um, as as uh, one of the easily one of the most entertaining horror movies that you will watch from the early nineties. By the way, I can thought. I just quickly say that uh, thinking about it now, right, that was an incredibly incest fueled night that I had watching films <laughs> with my pals because the other film that we watched that night was Mick Garris's Sleepwalkers. Oh my God, Jesus Christ! Yeah. You don't do things by half measures, did, 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 no. did, 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 um, did, did one of you pick all three of those? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which one was it? Wasn't me. How did, wasn't me. <laughs> How did things turn Good out for that guy? <laughs> I know for a fact that he, he runs a real estate company with his sister now. Oh, okay. So everything turned out fine then. <laughs> no, I wouldn't read anything into that. That's nice. Um, Duncan, I don't know how much you keep up with what we're doing kind of on the podcast, but I am actually mm-hmm. on a 90s side quest at the moment where I'm uh, mm-hmm. basically, I kind of, uh, I cottoned on to the fact that I thought that, or I, I got this idea into my head and I've kind of set out to kind of prove myself wrong or see if I can spot anything. But basically I kind of thought that the 90s, particularly pre-Scream 90s, is a kind of interesting era for horror because it was unshackled to any particular kind of zeitgeist or kind of trendy thing of the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do feel like when I was just completely by chance stumbled across a couple of things and it seemed like people were getting weird amounts of money to make really weird things. Yeah. Um, so I've been dipping in and out and trying all sorts of things like um, like everything through from like I've been watching like kind of things like Shram and things like that and I watched Mikey last week to like made for TV Canadian horror movies from 1991 all this kind of thing and I think that this is a good example like this is a particularly good example unfortunately I can't use it as my 90s side quest film this week because it's the main episode <laughs> film you bet see this is a really good example of money laundering by the man. Um, it's a really interesting uh, example of a film being a front for something else. No, like, um, uh, it's a really good example of uh, the thing about this era of 90s horror, this part of the 90s, mm. that, um, that kind of piqued my curiosity and made me start doing that because it kind of, it kind of made me think that I was like, these huge names were making these really eccentric films because like, who, who's this pitched at? I mean, yeah. like, you know, like, if, it, like yeah. if, you're, if you're watching this when you're 13, then understandable and like you say i think that like everything about it that worked for you at that age will still work for you now but theoretically you're not supposed to be watching it at that age so well you're definitely not because actually this has had a reclassification this was originally an 18 when i saw it yeah Yeah, and it's like so 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 who like from a kind of strict letter of the law marketing perspective who is this who's this for I, i don't know i think that's the weird thing like once again speaking about like craven was on a he was on a tier of like badly received horror movies as well like Serpent in the Rainbow is great but didn't do well um, Shocker is a ton of fun it. did not do well um, and then he does the people under the stairs which you could argue is like 10 times goofier than those two movies before and aimed at an age group that might not necessarily appreciate all the slapstick humour um, and taken on like a like a, a cultural base 
which weren't exactly known for spending a lot of money going to see horror movies. So I mean, it's yeah, I, I think you're. I think you're right. I, there's a there's a whole period where it feels like because horror becomes such a dirty word as well. Like in terms of it went so goofy and so strange that like you, some of the movies from this time period we did last year we did um. Uh, like a, a, I do it every summer I'm doing it on the 2000s this year but a massive series where I take each year with guests do ten the 10 best movies from that year and then basically have they all have to fight out and the top 2 movies go on to create a list of 20 movies at the end which are then kind of scored down to create a definitive non-definitive list because it works on the premise that every year must be represented by 2 movies so if one year has like 96 might have 5 great movies but only 2 can go mm-hmm. through and when we when I was looking at that list specifically the first like ninety to ninety four I think it is, there are some weird and wonderful titles that have like a decent budget that just make no sense as to one how they got made, two who the market is, and three how anyone ever thought they were going to get their money 100%. back. Hundred percent. It's it's such a curiosity to me. Like it really is. Um, and I think that this is a really interesting example of that. But Duncan, this does lead us on quite nicely to uh, checking in with you and what's going on and what is happening specifically with uh, the podcast under the stairs right now. So yeah, the, like the aforementioned series is what I'm knee deep in right now. So um, on podcast under the stairs, I do like tons of things, um, yeah. tons of little sub series and all the rest that like run on the the eight films slasher classics collection, which. If you ever want to see a collection that plays footless and fancy free with the term slasher, um, <laughs> that's one. Uh, I do the the Italian collection there as well, which is for the most part a, a pure joy of. It's got me into so many things that I didn't realise I was actually a big fan yeah, of. Yeah, and the only the main... thing they've got in common is Italy. Um, yes, totally. <laughs> literally. Yeah, that is. Look, there's no theme there at all. <laughs> out with the the movies are Italian production. Mm-hmm. That's okay. it. So I've I've covered everything from weird sci-fi ripoffs through to Jallo's, uh, the police procedural stuff. Found it that I have a weird love for spaghetti westerns, which I never used to enjoy, but I really found that I do from that collection. And they've got some of the, the weirder ones in there. But the main show that's dropping on Mondays for the foreseeable future um, is a run through the 2000s. And it's using the rules that I, I mentioned before. Cool. Each of the guests get to pick a, a few movies. We create a giant list. We do many reviews on those episodes and um, come away with two movies that will create a list of 20, which all the hosts, 15 in total, will vote on and will create a, a, a kind of top 20 list scored. Uh, and what's great about those is I've been doing them for the last couple of years. They're massive efforts because I have to watch essentially 100 plus movies uh, before I, I start doing it. Um, so I come away with a, a great knowledge of movies that I didn't know existed or get a chance to revisit ones I haven't seen in a long sure. time. But ultimately, every episode, if you are in for the long haul on a podcast, every episode is four hours plus on a Monday and it will open your eyes. And the exciting thing about the 2000s as a decade is it's generally dismissed as a decade of remakes because that's what the Americans were doing a lot of. But to me, the 2000s is the decade where Japanese horror finds a voice, French horror finds a voice, Spanish horror finds sure. a voice, South Korean revenge cinema kicks mm. off. You get, a, a, so it's been amazing, like tackling tons of foreign horror movies and opening the eyes of people that maybe haven't watched them. So that's the main thrust of that. But can I just say, I know I, I, I always uh, come on here and give you 
both the old uh, soapy hand job um, <laughs> when I'm on. But I, I mean, it is, it's a genuine pleasure to be back here. It's a, an honour to be the first third time guest on the show. And uh, once again, I wish you all the success with this show. One of these ones that makes me immensely proud to see the episodes come out with the frequency you do, because you do the right thing, which is consistency in podcasting. It's king. Uh, keep those episodes churning out, and uh, I will keep checking it out, source. Thank oh, you very much. Thank you, Thank you very man. much. Can I just say before you go that I love the fact that you've just said that you're doing a four-hour weekly episode that that uh, as part of a process that necessitated you watching 100-plus films. And when you came on at the start of this, we were like, what have you been doing during lockdown? And you were like, fuck all, I've been really lazy. <laughs> I, I started early, right? To get, <laughs> like, I have to, like, the, series, the series starts for me proper in January. Um because if I don't start it in January, it won't kick off in July. Sure. Uh, so I start way, way, way out. Okay. Um, but that means that like all the movies that everyone else is watching just now and the great TV shows and all the rest, I've been it's just two thousand horror movies that I've been watching. So like I, I'm I'm the king of two thousands horror at the moment, but I haven't watched half of what everyone keeps telling me. It's amazing. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I need to watch. So I'm so behind the times. Uh, Duncan, very quickly before you go, where can people keep up with you and what you're doing? Uh, you can check out Podcasts Under the Stairs wherever you listen to podcasts. But if you want to find them all under one roof and all the other little kind of podcast stuff that I do, I've got tons of side shows that I do on a different feed. Um, you can go to the website, which is tputscast, which is T-P-U-T-S cast.com. And it's all there. Awesome. Amazing. Duncan, thank you so much for doing this again with us. And yeah, we'll see you in about a year. <laughs> Can't wait. So I think that we'll definitely have Duncan back for a fourth sometime in 2021, right? Yeah, I just, uh, do you know, part of me thinks, why even wait a year? Like, I really, I just like having Duncan on the show so, so much. That it's like yeah he always picks great films and uh, he's always up for it and he always comes in with like his exact understanding of the way we like to talk about films and stuff like that it's just it's always really easy big thank you though to duncan mcleish of the podcast under the stairs uh, regardless of what he tells you he is the most prolific man in podcasting he's <laughs> got to be like i don't know i don't know how you're churning out four hour episodes plus all the other stuff he puts out like, i don't know how he how he manages that and being a family man yeah yeah pretty amazing stuff but with that we are just about done for another one however we are never far away we will be back on monday with another minisode for your ears loads of good stuff up and coming there i've actually watched a bunch of stuff already this week yeah i've watched some stuff as well by the way you're never far we're never far away makes it sound vaguely sinister yeah i specifically i'm like lurking around a corner in a bush yeah, occasionally. Uh, but yeah, we'll be back with another mini-sode on Monday and we will be talking about what we've been watching. I can confirm mm, yeah. that I will have a 90s film watched. Mm-hmm. Uh, amongst some other things. We will, of course, be playing Mitch's Pitches. We'll be reverting back to its original form. There. <laughs> Thank fuck. Um, also, <laughs> also taking a look at your feedback and, of course, letting you know everything you need to know about next week's episode. And I tell you, this one's going to knock you off your chair. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this immensely. Going to be a lot of fun. Now, also, don't forget, if you are a patron, then you'll be seeing some new content coming your way as well. Sorry for the delay on that one, but that'll be hitting your feeds. Yeah, and thanks to everyone who's dropped a wee message along this week. That's much appreciated. Thank you very much. 
However, in the meantime, if you want to get in touch with us, there are many, many ways that you can do that. Facebook and Instagram. We are Strong Language Violent Scenes. You can tweet us as well at Strong Violent PC, and you can email longer considerations to stronglanguagevioluntscenes at gmail.com. And I almost forgot, you can, of course, interact with other listeners on our Facebook group, The Chud Locker. Ah, the ever elusive Chud Locker. And I know you've just mentioned it, but please do check out our Patreon page. Um, Patreon.com forward slash Strong Language Violent Scenes. There might be something there that tickles your fancy, floats your boat, uh, other things like that. Yeah, a few different tiers going on there. However, if you do want to support the show any other way, the best way to do that is to keep listening, tell your pals, or maybe leave a rating or a review on your podcast platform of choice. That'd be pretty sweet. Yeah, and I've said this before, but preferably a good review. Yeah, yeah. If if, if your review is going to be like three stars or lower, contact us and we'll discuss it privately. <laughs> Air your grievances in private. We are back on Monday. Join us then if you can. In the meantime, don't forget, it is better to die a hero than live as food in a world of chuds. Goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Strong Language and Violent Scenes with Andy Stewart and Mitch Bain. Strong Language and Violent Scenes theme by Mitch Bain. Production and artwork by Andy Stewart. Find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Podbean.